the woman in the scriptures and the man in the story had an illusion in common. And their illusion that began as an illusion and ended shattered was that somehow our secrets could remain secret. Somehow the sins that we thought were private would remain private. Somehow the indulgences that were personal would somehow not touch anyone else. Reason tells us, doesn't it, that there's got to be an area in life that's just us. No one knows. Reason tells us that no one can ever find out about this. How would they know? But there is an intuitive wisdom that says someday it will come out. Someday other people will be affected. I've been your pastor for almost 15 years now. And it says in the book of John, it's time we had the talk. <laughs> the talk, you know the talk, the one. The talk always starts out with sex, never ends up with sex. It says that there was a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. This is not hard to believe. You remember the historic setting here. They were at the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles where all of the people were coming in. They were standing in these little booths. So there are many visitors. They were at the end of eight days of partying. It's not hard to believe that this happened. And it's not hard to believe that this woman was thrown in front of Jesus specifically because it was not her they were after. It was him. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 22 that when certain people are caught in certain acts, they are to be stoned to death. They, I don't know where the man was. Somehow he either escaped or bargained his way out, or it could have been a conspiracy. It could have been that he rejoined the crowd after he had tempted the woman just to make the point. We don't know. But we do know that there that day and common in that era was sexual sin. And we do know it did not end there. It did not end with that era. It has increased to this day. We do know one of the main problems of this society, one of the main preoccupations of this society is sexual sin. We know that. We know that from experience. We know that from reading. We know that from observation. And the privacy, but not the damage, is increasing. I read an article in Associated Press, 5th of May, Cinco de Mayo. It said that there was a meeting recently of a national committee on sexual addiction and compulsivity. And it said the effect that the internet is having upon sexual addiction in this country is very much like the effect that crack cocaine had on substance addiction in this country. That it is so much more available, so cheap, and seemingly so private, but so immediately addictive. 15% of people who go on the internet with regularity visit porn 
spots, porn sites. Here's the startling thing to me. There are as many women as men who do this. The women go to the chat rooms. The men go to the pictures. But the distribution is equal. And there has been an increase simply because people believe this can really remain secret. It can really remain private. No one needs to know. But what they're noticing is one breakup of a relationship after another. Because the damage that seems personal is interpersonal. People are turning away from people who, by the way, are very complicated to self-gratification, to simplicity. And so relationships are being broken one after another. That which was thought to be private is not private at all. One of the ways in this country that we turn away and avoid our own sexual preoccupation is to look at somebody else who's worse off or who has another category of sex problem. Last week, there was a multitude of homosexuals in, uh, in Washington, D.C., demonstrating for civil rights. And I don't know where you are on that. But I want to tell you, it's real easy for us to talk about them. As a matter of fact, there's an analogy here, quite a striking analogy, of these people who are quite hypocritical in isolating one form of sexual aberration and putting that form in front of Jesus and making it a deal. And in doing that, they're doing a couple of things. First of all, they are trapping Jesus in an unwinnable political battle. When they brought that woman to Jesus, they said, okay, choose. Do we stone her or don't we? There's no way he could win that on that basis with that choice. If he said, no, don't stone her, he was turning against the political machinery of the religion. That was a theocracy back then. At least it was in the, uh, um, in the people of Judaism. There was, a, there was a civil rule there, but it was also under the umbrella of Rome. And so if he said, yes, stone her, then the Roman authorities would have come and would have gotten him for ordering an execution. There was no way to politically win. I want to tell you, there's no way to politically win today. There is so much pressure on the church. There's so much pressure on the leaders of the church, me specifically, on a regular basis to take what power this church has and to turn it into a political power, to begin to take sides in politics. There's this huge guilt that's laid on us. If this country goes to hell, it's your fault, preacher, because you didn't rally the troops. And it's your fault if the morals of this country continue to go down and down. I want to tell you, there was that day to Jesus a real pressure to trade the bowl and the towel, the instruments of being a servant, to trade them in for the scepter and the sword, the instruments of being a political power. Jesus did not take that temptation, and I won't either. You stop coming to me and talking to me about politics. 
Let's talk to us about how we are at fault for this country. Let's talk to us about how we can fix it. See, there's two ways you got to look at this. One, you can't excuse sin that's sin. Sin is sin. If it's in the book, if it's named, it's sin. If it's named as sin, it's sin. It'll always be sin. And it doesn't matter what time it is, what times there are. It doesn't matter what your genetics are. If it's named in here, it unchanged. You can find a genetic predisposition for any sin in this book. You understand that? You really can. I mean, people are not only finding it for sexual orientation these days, but hey, you want to commit adultery? You know there's a genetic predisposition for that. You want to eat a lot? There's a genetic predisposition for that. You want to get angry or not? A lot? There's a genetic predisposition. You, I tell you, we wait long enough, we'll have an excuse for all our sin. Every one of us. There's, there is, you can't mess with this. You can't say, oh, I don't count that anymore because we've discovered the reason or times have changed. This is the word of God. If it says it's a sin in here, it's a sin. But watch this. There is a choice that we have between accepting and casting stones. Now, please listen to me. I'm not saying that we should not exercise our civic responsibility as Christians and vote every chance we get and vote how we think God ought to have us vote. But casting a vote is way different than casting a stone. And it ought to feel different. There is a sense in which, in this occasion, Christians have a habit of a of, of, of making the identification of sin without the identification with sin. You see, if you really want to go down that list that names homosexuality, let's continue with that list, shall we? Because what I want to show you today is sin is sin. It's just different categories, but we're all on the list. We all made the list. We did. You can go to the, the, one of the lists is in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and it names homosexuality. But it also says, it goes on to talk about thieves. Well, you say, I don't, well, I don't fall into that one. Really? Did you tithe today? Malachi 3.10 says, if you don't tithe, you're robbing the Lord. How'd you do on your taxes last time? Did you put everything down? Well, oh, well. How about this one? It also, also on that list is covetous. Well, I'm glad I don't. Well, wait a minute. Do you ever want something that somebody else had? How about a car? You ever seen a car you really want? How about clothes? You ever wish you really had? How about a house? You ever wish? How about popularity? Who wants to be a millionaire? Yeah, you're right here. There's another list in Galatians 5. Even if you got the biggies licked, what about, what about the other biggies? What about the more subtle, socially acceptable ones? What about the very ones that disguise themselves as religious and righteous indignation? What about anger? You see, it says in Galatians chapter 5 that 
in addition to the sins of the flesh, are the sins of, of not only immorality and impurity and sensuality. You know, you don't have to do anything. You can just kind of look <laughs> attractive and make the list. <laughs> they got all kinds of stuff down here. Sorcery, you play with Ouija boards any? Sorcery. But then it goes into, you know, just personal stuff like enmity and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger. <laughs> Nobody, huh? <laughs> Disputes, dissensions, factions. You know what? Let's just cut, let's just cut it short. You shout out what's in your head and I'll find it in here. <laughs> All of us made the list. That's the point. It's not them, it's us. It's all of us. And that's what Jesus did that day. He said, wait a minute. You're identifying sin when you ought to be identifying with sin. Who is there in here who hasn't? Who is there in here who isn't? Jesus said, wait a minute. If you give me the opportunity to tell you I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to do two things he said first of all I'm going to take a little break you notice what he did when he just they asked him and they were forcing him to answer they only gave him two choices he did not confine himself to their choices you are not confined to the choices given you you are not confined either to acceptance or stoning. Either to saying it doesn't matter or condemnation. You are not confined to those two choices. Nor are you confined to immediate answers when you feel pressure. He bent down and started writing in the dirt. Now, people are curious as to what he was writing. We don't know. Some people speculate that he was writing their names. That would be threatening, wouldn't it? <laughs> they speculate that because it says in Jeremiah 17, that those who turn away from the Lord will have their names written in the dust. Now that probably, that, that was a big crowd and there have been a lot of names. And probably what that means is that names not written in the book of life, but rather written in that which fades away. But some people speculate it was their name. Some people speculate that he was making some sort of sign. It really doesn't matter. Because you know what he was doing? He was letting it cool down. You know as well as I do that when you're in an argument, when you feel pressure, the more pressure you feel, the less you're capable or able to reason as you want to. Emotions and reasoning power are like a teeter-totter. When the emotion goes up, the reasoning power goes down. It's not until the emotion goes down that the reasoning power goes up. And so when you feel under a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, that's the very time you need to step back and just fiddle around with dirt. I, I, tell, I tell parents this all the time. Your, your, kids, your kids always are in some sort, they got an emergency. I need to know, you know. And I tell parents, unless somebody's bleeding, you haven't got an emergency. You take your time. You decide what's right. And if they miss a party because you've missed a decision, there'll be another party. 
You know, you've got to, you've got. And so Jesus said, "Mm -mm, not taking your choices, not taking your timetable. And this is what he did. He said, I want you to see something from a whole different perspective. I don't want you to see something in terms of right or wrong. Do you know love is more complicated than who wins? Love is more complicated than who wins. Love is more complicated than right or wrong. It really is. He said, I I want you to see yourselves here. I want you to see something. He didn't excuse the sin. He didn't save that woman from hell that day. He just saved her from execution. But he, he said this. He said, I know that you sin. Because he said, go and sin no more. And, and, and by the way, I, I really have a difficult time with that portion of Christianity, they call themselves, that decide what portions of the Bible are true and what portions aren't. I'm not sure how you can decide that other than to your benefit. I just don't. But you know what? I have even more of a problem hanging around with the religious right. Because even if you're right technically, you're wrong attitudinally. And that, I was walking with my, with my boys one, one day in a mall. This is years and years ago. They're real little. And I'd just given them their allowance. Buck 50, something like that. And, I, and, and they, know, they knew that after they gave their tithe, they, were, they, were, they could spend that money where they wanted to. So we were walking in the mall, and I'd just, just been talking with Beck about this prisoner. I was visiting at, at a uh, federal facility. He was there for murder. And I'd been seeing him for probably a year and a half. And last time I saw him, he didn't have any stamps to write um, somebody. So, so, and I didn't have any money on me. So I just said, well, I've got to get him some stamps. And she had, she had heard me, or they had heard me say this. So just paid them their allowance and they're walking along. And one of them, you know, we go buy a stamp machine. And he said, I'm going to spend all my allowance buying stamps for the prisoner. Well, the stamps cost $2. He had, you know, like a buck and a quarter left or something like that. He didn't have enough. So the other one just standing there. <laughs> and the other one, who shall go unnamed, <laughs> looked at me and said, Daddy, I'm going to start saving today like you told me to. <laughs> now, I couldn't blame him. Because he was doing something that was right, but I couldn't praise him. Because he wasn't doing all that was right. I can't blame the religious right for getting mad. I know people are scared. I know they feel unsafe. I can't blame them for freezing up. But I can't praise them. Because you know what? I just don't see that kind of anger and that kind of condemnation and that kind of control in my Lord. I just don't see it. As a matter of fact, I see just the opposite. The only people I ever see Jesus get mad at in all of the record of him in the New Testament are the religious self-righteous people. It's only, the only time he ever flies off the handle. Now, seems to me <laughs> that old pogo saying, we have met the enemy and they is us applies here. Jesus was saying, there isn't any them. There's just us. 
We're all on a list. There's no big sin, little sin. There's some more socially acceptable, but they're not socially acceptable to God. We're just all in this great fellowship, not of sin. Sin doesn't have a fellowship. Doesn't have any fellowship. Sin separates. But it never, watch, it never eliminates belonging. See? Do you understand when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, do you think for one minute they ever stopped belonging to God? They were separate from him, but they didn't stop belonging. When the prodigal son got his stuff and went off to sin, do you ever think for one moment that that father said, he doesn't belong to me anymore? (laughs) Never stop belonging. You understand what Jesus did in this scripture when he said, okay, I want you to throw the first stone at her. He said, there's a person here. It's not a sin. It's a person. Sin is what we get mad at, but you've got to understand, sin always attaches itself to a person. And those are people you love. Some of you love some of the people that were in Washington, D.C. last week. I do. I had a friend up there. I miss him. I miss him because I'm separated from him. But it doesn't eliminate our belonging together. You see? And so there's this great fellowship, not of sin, but of need. And that's what Jesus was saying that day. You all need what I have. This woman in front of me. This woman who was so soiled, looking into the eyes of perfect holiness, saw what she needed. And that was compassion. That's what we all see. But you know the justice of this? Justice of this is that when you realize that's what you need, you've also got to realize that's what you've got to forgive. You've also got to realize that we have to forgive just as we have been forgiven. We've got to cut slack just like we've been cut slack. We've got to say, look, I'm praying for you and I'm loving you. And I hope that doesn't keep tearing your life up just like we've been given that from God. So that day Jesus looked at her and said, I don't condemn you. But I want you to go from here and I don't want you to sin anymore. Now you need to understand that by saying that he was saying, don't ever do another sin. I I expect you, you will never sin again. That's not what he was saying. The verb tense and mood in the original language is, I know that you're sinning now and I want you to go from here and not practice sin. Every person in here has a stronghold in their life, at least one. One sin that you're liable to fall into more than any other. Some of it is anger and self-righteousness. Some of it is sexual addiction. Some of it is keeping away from people you ought to be helping. It's just because you don't want to mess with it. Some of it, I can't possibly know. 
But God knows. And Jesus would say to us today, if we would really come and look at him and say, I'm right with that woman in the dirt. I'm right with her. My sin's of a different kind, but I'm right there with her. I'm looking up at you. Jesus would say to us, I don't condemn you. But I want you to go from here and I don't want you to sin anymore. Now I want the girls to come back out. And I want... uh, I want to say a prayer right before this last song. This last song is so cool. It's about the potter's house. You remember the analogy in Jeremiah about the potter. About how God's, God's like a potter who just takes us and breaks us. Because he wants to make us perfect. And every time there's a flaw, he can break us. And we can't look at him and say, quit breaking me like that. Because he's the potter. And finally, he molds us into what he wants. Before this song, though, I want to pray for all of us. And, I, and I'm, we're not going to have anybody stand up today. But I want to say three prayers. First of all, there are some of you who came in here today and you weren't sure that you're forgiven. And you don't want to live a life of sin anymore. It's empty. It's stupid. You just don't want to do that to yourself anymore. So I want to say that I want to say the sinner's prayer with you. And if you've never before said this, I want you to follow and say in your heart what I'm saying with my mouth. And if you really mean it, you'll be saved today. And you'll be forgiven for every sin you've ever done. And every sin you ever will. Secondly, I want to release all of us from the strongholds. By looking up in the eyes of Christ and saying, God, forgive me. And hearing him say, okay, but I want you to go from here and I don't want you to do that anymore. I don't want you to practice that anymore. So I want this prayer of repentance. And thirdly, some of us have this self-righteous thing we got to get rid of. We just got to get rid of this. It doesn't look like Christ. It doesn't sound like Christ. It's not like his people. We just got to get rid of this thing. This little secret, aha, so they're the problem. Aha, told you, they're worse than I am. Because it's simply a way of avoiding our own fault. So come on, pray with me. Lord, there are some who have just never said this sinner's prayer. And they're not sure about their relationship with you, but they want to be. They're tired of sin and they want to confess their sin and and they want to live a new life. So, Lord, let them say this prayer with me in their hearts. Lord Jesus, I have sinned by choice. And I have stayed away from you by choice. And I don't want to do that anymore. I'm tired of those choices. I'm tired of that life. It's dumb. It's empty. I never can be satisfied with it. I want to live a whole new life. And I know I can't do that on my own. So I want to die to that old life. And I want you to come in. And I want you to give me a new life. I know that when you died on the cross, you paid for all the sins of the whole world, including mine. And I know I never could have paid for them, but you did. And you offer me that payment. So, Lord, today I accept it. I accept it. Just your grace. I accept it. Thank you. I ask you to come and live in my heart. Give me a new life, whatever kind you want. Lord, there are others of us who have prayed that prayer. And we just have gotten stuck in a rut of sin.
It's just another category. It's no better or worse than any other sin, but it's sin and it does the damage. And eventually it will not only hurt us, it'll hurt those we love. And we don't want to do that. And we know it hurts you and we don't want to do that. So Lord, look at us, soiled creatures that we are, and tell us that you don't condemn us, but we're to go from this place and sin no more. Don't practice that anymore. And lastly, <laughs> I don't know who we think we are, thinking we're better than anybody, and condemning them when, when we're just as bad, but God forgive us for that self-righteousness. I know that just makes you mad, and it ought to. Grab us up by the short hairs and turn us toward you, and look us in the eye and say, who do you think you are? And let us answer, we're the woman in the dust. We're sorry. And let us go from this place in that great fellowship of need, praying for one another, loving one another, respecting one another, and pulling for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.